That was the theme song from Men Behaving Badly. And that leads us into our next story. Our long-form interview tonight is with food and drink writer Jess Ho, who's just had a first book published and is about to start on the next one. Raised by Wolves documents Jess's time as a rising star in the Melbourne hospitality sector, particularly as front of house for one of Melbourne's best-known restaurants, referred to in the book only as The Restaurant, with other names redacted too and replaced by our fearless leader, senior manager and old man sexual harasser. But as Jess explains, you can Google almost anything these days, The actual names that she's redacted were not necessarily important to the narrative, she said. What Jess forcefully and effectively does is to call out the industry for its bad behaviour and lack of care for the mental well-being of its employees. I spoke to Jess this week, having read the book. I found myself saddened by scenes in the final chapter of what is a revealing read about an industry in which we may all have been unwitting participants. Welcome Jess Ho to Travel Writers Radio. Jess, I've just finished reading your book. You come off so tough for most of the book and towards the end I got very sad. It surprised me actually because you clearly came across as a resilient operator and a very, very good operator in the hospitality industry or or the hospo industry as you refer to it and yet obviously it took its toll on you eventually. How How do you feel about that? Oh, you know, I think with a lot of things If you put that first and you are uncompromising, as hospitality is on many people, you know, it really is something you have to walk away from, which is what I did. I know a lot of people who don't take care of themselves and they stay in the industry and they burn out. It it hurts their personal relationships and their mental health isn't so great. So it is about finding that balance. You've written this book, Raised by Wolves. Was that your title or was that something the publishers chose? Uh, that was my title. It was a working title that became the end title. Yeah, and obviously you're referring to being brought up in the industry, but is, is there also a bit of a sense there that you you separated from your family early? Is that part of it as well? Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of the phrase itself, you know, raised by wolves is like, who raised you? And it's like, well, not my parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... It is a bit of an indictment and a comment on the industry and how it treats people. I wouldn't have been surprised if you said you weren't referring to your parents because um, you say you were brought up fairly strictly and uh, that's probably the opposite of being raised by wolves, I would have thought. Yes. Oh, I mean, you know, the environment that a lot of uh, Asian kids and a lot of immigrant kids in general uh, is a quite strict environment because... They do put all of their hopes and dreams into you and you're like, please, let me live my own life. Yeah, and and they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that and you probably didn't take the course they really wanted you to take. Oh, I think a lot of us don't. And I think a lot of us are getting to the point where we're being more vocal and proud about not being doctors and lawyers because there are people who want those jobs and who will be probably a lot better at it than we are. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, well, I, I, I guess that's a fair comment too. But you you seem to me to have lived your life as a little bit of an outsider. Would would you agree with that scenario? Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, I was an outsider in my family. I was an outsider school? at school. Yeah. Uh, you know, even in the industry, uh, I was an outsider because it is or was, when I first started out, incredibly white. And you were you were you born here? 
I was born here. Right. So, you know, when I go back to Hong Kong, I feel like an outsider there. They, you know, call me white person, uh, even though I don't look it. And then, you know, I come back to Australia and they're like, yeah, you've got Australia written on your passport, but you're not really Australian. Yeah, I, I can understand how tough that would be. Uh, when I was at school, the I guess the kids who were the outsiders were the Greeks, the Italians, is sort of, uh, you know, that post-war migration situation. And, and I guess it's, it just happens in waves in countries like Australia. It depends which wave you're in, I guess. But the result is probably often the same, that you don't fit the pretty tough white stereotype that we've been handed down by the Brits and they've handed it around the world I think to lots of places where they've uh, been the colonial overlords. Uh, we can't blame them yes. but um, we, we certainly haven't done much to address it as an issue. Yeah I you know I hope that things are turning around and things are being addressed especially in food because I don't think people realise that food isn't just entertainment it is quite political and if we go back to it, and as you pointed out, colonisation, uh, it is a result of a lot of food dispossession. Yeah, well, that, that's true. I do. I love the way you write. I've got to say, you know, I'm one of those trained journalists that you talk about not being one. But um, maybe sometimes you can be uh, overtrained. Uh, I just love you've got a natural talent. For someone who probably didn't start out speaking English at home, I imagine you were probably talking Cantonese within the family, weren't you? That is correct. I didn't speak a word of English until I started school and my sister's older than me and they threatened to hold her back from school because she wasn't speaking English all the time. So then my parents were like, well, as soon as you go to school, all you're speaking is English. You're speaking English to us. You're speaking English at school. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't even know how to say my name. Right. And, and what, how was your parents English? Had they learned it before they got to Australia or were they learning along with you? My mother spoke completely fluent English. Right. My dad reluctantly spoke English uh, because they were raised in British colonised Hong Kong. Yeah. So their education, they learnt Cantonese and English while they were at school. Yeah. Well, you know, Hong Kong, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother series of questions and I'm just not going there right now. Um, <laughs> but, you, yeah, you do have a lovely way of, of putting it. Jess, sometimes it's pretty brutal. But I guess that's that's how you found the industry, that you were a resource that was there to be used and they certainly got their money's worth out of you. Do you think they realised how hard you worked and how little time off you took? and Or was, was it just that's what the industry had, had to do in those times? Um, it still exists today like that. Really? You know, I think after... Yeah, definitely. I think after lockdown... There are certainly very good operators who understand that people need more work-life balance because, you know, they were working along everyone else and they're like, oh, why aren't you working so hard? But, you know, after lockdown, they're like, oh, no, we need to spend more time with our families. We need to sleep more. Why would I deprive you of that? But the majority of operators are still very much like, this is a machine. We need to make money. It is a business. I know chefs who have gone into work with flip this and still done a double shift. You know, there's that cliche that is actually very true. Uh, unless you're in hospital, you can't call in sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, were you working in the industry during the pandemic or not? I was not. Uh, I was working as a journalist during the pandemic, right. uh, food and drink journalist. So I got to report on all of that. Right. So do you think it's changed at all during that period? Do you think the observations you made and laid out in this book are still relevant? 
definitely. Um, I think with venues opening and closing and opening and closing with all our numerous lockdowns in Melbourne, um, people are severely burnt out because even though it looks like the venues have been closed this whole time, it's actually been more ruthless because it's like, how do we get on social media? How do we do takeaway? How do we keep our venues open so we can pay everyone and pay ourselves and pay all the debt that we've accrued through lockdown? And some people are really, you know, it's a numbers game. Other people are more humanistic about it. But yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people who've claimed burnout and people are moving away from the industry because of it. Yeah, I'm well aware of the fact that people are, um, are moving out into other industries. They're, if they're good at project management, they've been snapped up by the construction industry, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I guess, what does a chef do if they want to move out of the industry? They have to start, what, a takeaway shop or something? Uh, some people do that. Uh, I have seen chefs move into the catering business because you get paid yeah. mint for doing that. Uh, your hours are more reasonable. Um, I've also seen other chefs move into ambassadorial or sales positions. Uh, one of the most talented chefs I know is now, you know, working in sales for Yarra Valley Salmon Caviar. Oh, I and know that. Able yeah. To, yeah. yeah, it's a great and product. And he's able to, it's delicious. Mm. He's able to teach other chefs not only how to use it because he was basically using it so much on his menu, but how to cost it. And, you know, think creatively around it and how to incorporate it into things. So it's a natural progression. And I think so many chefs think they're stuck being chefs. But, you know, they can be ambassadors. They can be salespeople. They do, they do it every day. I guess from your point of view, being out of the industry at that point or out of the firing line in the industry was probably a saving grace for you, would you say? Uh, it was. You know, I sold my business before the pandemic as well. And it was just like you know, quite quite a few years before the pandemic, but I was a bit like, wow, I am so lucky. Um, I have so many friends who had to struggle through lockdowns hmm. and, you know, always remaining fresh and filling out all those applications so you can serve takeaway and extend your red line and all those things. Uh, it's exhausting and it's kind of like you're always anxious waiting for the result or waiting for the public to take on what you're putting out there. Yeah, it was definitely a tough time. Like you, we were reporting on on a lot of this, not only in the restaurant uh, business, but in hotels and in destinations, so sort of across the board. It, it, it uh, was pretty yeah. tough. How did how has the industry responded to your book, Jess? Uh, it's, I actually thought that everyone would turn around and hate me, but... Uh, uh, the majority of the feedback that I have received has been so positive and they're like, this is exactly what it is and people need to realise that and we need to be treated like humans. Yeah, it's it's interesting that it's taken you to call it out. Like there's been lots of other yeah, people I, over the years who could have perhaps called it out. Completely. And I think it's a bit of a broken system. And I think the majority of food books that we read from people in an autobiographical sense, they're from chefs who own their own venues or who are so brilliant and, you know, their venues are wildly successful. So, of course, they're not going to say there is a mistreatment of front-of-house staff. Um, There is mistreatment of staff all around because they're in control of that culture. Yeah. Well, well, there have been some infamous situations in which staff weren't paid properly. You know, no name, no pack drill, but uh, the industry is not exactly squeaky clean on that front. No. um, A lot of people 
believe it or not. Mm. I would say the majority of people in hospitality are not paid properly, mm. but there is a shift, and I'm grateful for the shift. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, hospitality workers work really, really hard, and they sacrifice a lot of their lives, a lot of their time with their families or their loved ones, their own health, just to be able to feed you and give you a good experience. Yeah. Now, people who pick up your book, Jess, will see some really, there's some interesting things you've done in it. Uh, and part of it is to codify uh, your life in the restaurant business and you developed a series of symbols that you and your staff would use to determine what sort of a customer was sitting at that particular table by the window. Um, if he was somebody who didn't treat female staff well, you had a particular symbol for him. Was that um, something you felt you need to do just to warn everybody else or were you taking a little bit of delight in that? How do you, how do you position yourself on that one? Well, with that, it really is about protecting your colleagues and having people aware of who they're serving. Um, and, you know, you develop all these signs and symbols so the other people who look at your screen, other customers, don't know that you there is anonymity. Unfortunately, when you're in hospitality, it's about giving everyone the most amazing experience ever. And you can't say to someone, I'm not serving you tonight because your boss will turn around and say, hey, you're fired. <laughs> Yeah, well, you did personally have a situation where a regular at a venue that you worked at became a bit of a pest to yourself and uh, your friend, who is named in the book, Mike, stood up for you, I think, in that situation and the bloke got scared off or something. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. That was a little bit unusual because you sometimes still have to put your foot down. Oh, well... This is the thing. It's like when you're at work, you can't really stand up for yourself because you have to justify it. There'll be an investigation and you will most likely eventually get fired. And, you know, a lot of owners either conveniently don't see what has been said or done to you. And it takes someone else to call it out. And, you know, whether that be a friend who was a colleague at the time, the manager on duty, it matters. But unfortunately, there are no consequences. So it's kind of like you have to reassess how much your business that you're working for, uh, the place that you spend 60 hours a week at, is willing to protect your safety. Mm. Now, a lot of the names you've redacted in the book, was that to protect the innocent or did the publishers decide they didn't want to use names? You Like the restaurant, uh, the main restaurant you worked in and write about isn't named... How did that come about? Um, I made that choice consciously. Uh, I think, you know, if people want to find out, they can find out themselves. Uh, Google is a powerful machine. Mm. Um, But at the same time, it's really not important to the storytelling because all these different characters and people and restaurants exist for everyone. Everyone who's worked in hospitality has had that exact situation happen to them. Mm. And whether or not I call out one or call out 50, it doesn't matter. And you don't think that you're damning many by damning one? Uh, no. I, I Look, I think it's one of those things where if people recognise themselves in it or think that, oh, is Jess talking about my venue, then it probably is and you should reassess the way that you run your place. Like, how, how are you keeping your house? <laughs> yeah. Jess Ho is speaking with Graham Kemlo about the plight of employees in Melbourne's hospitality industry, the behaviour of their bosses and some of their customers. 
you are a great advocate for, for Melbourne and for its food scene. Like you go to New York almost on a whim in this in the book and uh, you spend time there. But as soon as you get there, you sort of wish you were back in Melbourne to some extent in terms of, of what was being offered in the food scene at least. Uh, no, it wasn't necessarily me wishing that I was back in Melbourne. It was seeing food media and the hype around food for what it really is and seeing the parallel with Melbourne right. and then understanding, yeah, and just understanding the best places to get food uh, from people who've created their own communities rather than culturally appropriate. So do you, do, do you at all feel like you detract from Melbourne's reputation as a great food city or doesn't it deserve that reputation any longer? I mean, Melbourne is a great food city, but I think we need to make our choices on where we spend money hmm. uh, because they are political decisions. Right. And, just, you know, we need to, as much as travel, make informed decisions by doing a bit of research before we go to places. I love the fact that your favourite Chinese restaurant is somewhere in the suburbs. You haven't you haven't named it probably for fear of having them overwhelmed and it serves a particular yeah. type of duck and you like to sort of travel to eat there. I guess there's a certain anonymity in you going out there. Is that right? There is a certain anonymity, but I think, you know, in beautiful, you know, mum and pop restaurants where they do what they do really well, you know, they've never played the game. They've never wanted to be, you know, in the media. They don't want an accolade. They just want to do what they do really well and make enough money and feed their family and send them to school and pay the mortgage. Mm. Mm. Like there's a purity to that. Yeah. And do you think Melbourne's restaurant scene is a little bit overhyped then? Um, you know, I can't put that claim across Melbourne altogether. I think there are venues definitely worth going to, like the one in the epilogue. Um, but, you know, I think the venues that we praise and overpraise, um, you know, probably need a little bit more thought. Mm. And, yeah, like, just look at the staff culture and what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. You don't dwell on it in the book, but you you were part of a, a food show that uh, went to air and you you talked about it not being successful and it doesn't sound like you were terribly surprised and you had some uncomfortable situations that occurred within that whole production framework. Do you think the, the, the whole... Um, and it wasn't MasterChef, so if I just use the term MasterChef as a, as a general term for, you know, uh, television shows that uh, maybe create false expectations in participants, is, is, that a, is that part of the issue in this city or indeed in this country? Oh, definitely. Um, I think people who think that they can take a shortcut to being very good in the industry and then, you know, I know people who've been on food shows because they think I can win this and then own a restaurant it's like how you've never worked in a restaurant before mm. you don't know what it takes to manage a team you don't know what the personalities are like you don't know what the hours are like and you know you haven't worked on your feet with that much intensity before is this something you really want and i think people who have the money to buy like their favorite cafe that's being sold are kind of sold a lie yeah because it's not a hobby it's more than a full-time job and, you know, it's something that can make you bankrupt. It's not romantic. <laughs> it's yeah, that, that, very, that's very true. real. It, it certainly has a, a certain romance being attached to it, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, as you would, you would argue. 
Do you ever think you'll go back into the business, Jess? Uh, not in the capacity of uh, a worker or an owner. Uh, look, I think there are great businesses out there, you know, during lockdown, even today, even, you know, in the time since we've reopened, I've worked a few rock star shifts for friends because they need staff and it's fun because I don't have any skin in the game. Right. And is that the, is, is not having skin in the game, is that your sort of out? You, you obviously don't mind hard work. That's really clear from what you've written. Um, I definitely don't mind hard work. You know, I enjoy doing a good service with good people and serving great food with excellent operators. But it's not something that I want to do full time anymore. And I don't want to own my own venue. It's too heartbreaking. And, you know, it gives you so much anxiety. And it's kind of untenable at the moment because rents are high, staff rates are high, payroll tax is high, electricity is high, food costs are like mm. just skyrocketing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, how do you make a dollar? Uh, because when I first started in the industry over 15 years ago now, um, if you were making a profit, it was a 5% profit. And that was, you know, reported by the Restaurant Catering Association. These days, if you're making a profit, it's 0.5%. Yeah. And it's kind of like, what are you doing all that work for? You might as well just keep your money in the bank and wait for interest and do nothing. Yeah. Well, there may be something to be said for uh, just following a McDonald's uh, theory, you know, just make one cent on every bag of chips you sell. <laughs> well, McDonald's is a real estate business. <laughs> well, yes, I guess it is. But uh, and, and you grew up doing doing something with one of those big uh, fast food chains, didn't you? Was that your start? I did. It was my first job ever, and I really enjoyed leaving. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, I think it's also, you know, I kind of identified that if I, I don't mind hard work, but I'd like to put some pride behind what I serve. Yeah, I understand. So, Jess, are you you're going to continue to write? And I notice you're doing a podcast. Is that still going on SBS? Uh, we still have the concept. We're not uh, doing a second season yet. Right. Uh, in terms of writing, I am definitely still writing, and I am writing a book through a firm. Another still. book? Yes. Oh, can you hint as to what that's and, about? Uh, unfortunately, uh, I will get in a lot of trouble if I say anything more. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. When should we see that, do you think? Oh, it's very early days. So, what, in book years, I would say minimum two years. Right. And <laughs> how long did it take you to write uh, Raised by Wolves? How long did that take you? Um, scarily, it took me four and a half months to write. Okay. Um, so not very long, but, um, yeah, just, you know, the life cycle of a book, it's kind of like you do your chapter outlines, you do the actual writing, and obviously there's the proofing and editing process and then printing, and, you know, it has to fit to a particular schedule. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Certainly. You don't have to answer <laughs> At the end of the book, <laughs> at the end of the book, obviously, you, you are heartbroken. Mm-hmm. Have you overcome that? Uh, no, I definitely haven't. And uh, is is so is writing another book going to be cathartic for you? Um, I wouldn't say so, just because it's uh, not non-fiction. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm not trying to. I'm trying to work out what the content of the books is. I'm just wondering how you work through the issues that obviously you accumulated over the period of working in the industry and then with this this love that you clearly had for for your friend. I mean, I... I oh, I th- you know, I deal with grief like every other person with a lot of therapy. Oh, well, I mean, 
I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, that you're dealing with it. That's that's good. But it's hard. I, I found it hard reading at the end. I've got to tell you. And I'm a you know a tough old bloody journal. I've been around quite a few years. Uh, but I did find it hard. Tears to the eyes, Jess. Oh well, I'll take that as a win. Yeah, you can. You can absolutely. I enjoyed the read. I'm happy to recommend this book to people. I'll I'll give the copy I was sent to somebody to read and I hope that they enjoy it too. And, you know, good on you for outing the industry. I mean, you did this um, probably outside of the Me Too movement because there's a bit of that sort of outing that uh, Mm. was needed. And I hope that you personally feel like you've indicated and... um, that you can you can move on with whatever you want to do. Maybe what you need is a tropical island somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So uh, it's hard for the punters to get to, and they shouldn't yeah. they shouldn't come with any outrageous expectation. They should just be happy to be sit down and fed whatever you choose to feed and water them with. Oh look, you know, I I kind of relive my uh, heyday by having very elaborate dinner parties. And, you know, that's kind of the extent of it now. Good on you. <laughs> well, Jess Ho, great to speak oh. with you, and uh, I, I do wish you well. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. That was Jess Ho speaking with Graham Kemlo. Raised by Wolves, a memoir with bite, is published by Affirm Press and is in bookstores now. This is The Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.